This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jennifer Walsh. I'm Dean of the College of Environmental Design here at Berkeley, and it's my great honor and pleasure to welcome you to the uh, 2015 uh, Hitchcock Lecture um, by the preeminent architectural critic, educator, and writer, Paul Goldberg. Um, For those of you who may not have been here yesterday uh, when Paul gave his first Hitchcock Lecture, um, the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lectures were endowed in 1885 uh, with the first lecture starting uh, on the Berkeley campus in 1909 and then in 1932 through a bequest from the Hitchcock's uh, daughter, uh, uh, Lily Hitchcock Coit, um, the program was expanded. Now, I think it's, if you look at the list of Hitchcock lecturers, it's, it's almost impossible to overstate the eminence of the people who have been Hitchcock lecturers. Um, this elite list primarily includes, especially in the early, early years, scientists, and right uh, after the series started, there were a number of years focused on earthquakes, but I, I guess we can understand why, um, if it started in 1909. Um, uh, the cadre of, of luminaries includes people like Robert Oppenheimer um, and Stephen Hawking, just to name a couple. And then also historians and social scientists um, are prominent on this list. Uh, Vasily Leontief, Clifford Geertz, Noam Chomsky, Herbert Simon, uh, Kenneth Boulding, Amartya Sen. So... Uh, it, it, it was not until 1952 that an architect or urbanist came to give a Hitchcock lecture when Joseph Hudnut, who had been dean at Columbia and was the first dean of the um, Harvard Graduate School of Design, came to Berkeley. And I must say that they, the Hitchcock committee really made him work. He gave seven lectures. Uh, so you're getting off really light, Paul. Um, uh, he gave three on Paris in the Middle Ages, one entitled The Common Man in the City, and another entitled We Are Building a City. Um, and then he d- did one on the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, uh, so it's, it suggests that despite his East Coast origins, he was not entirely immune to the charms of the city by the bay. Um, the next uh, architect um, uh, and scholar to, to come to, uh, and give a Hitchcock lecture was uh, Ada Louise Huxtable, the Pulitzer Prize-winning architectural critic for the New York Times as well as the Wall Street Journal and a, and a prolific writer. Um, and in 1982, she gave two lectures, both on tall buildings, the tall building beyond function and the tall building beyond style, which later uh, became a, a book about tall buildings reconsidered. And then uh, the, 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 the last person to come before Paul was um, Berkeley's own Peter Hall, Sir Peter Hall, who taught for many years in the Department of City and Regional Planning, and he came to, uh, back to give Hitchcock lectures in 1990 and spoke about cities and civilization, culture, innovation, and urban order. And also uh, his second lecture was The End of the City, the report of my death was an exaggeration. Um, so he, he was calling into question um, the, the thematics of the time, which s- seemed to uh, imagine that the city maybe wa- was on its last legs, not, not so fast. 
Well, uh, this afternoon, the Berkeley Hitchcock Committee, as well as the College of Environmental Design, our faculty, our students, and our alumni, are incredibly proud to welcome Paul Goldberger to our campus and our community, and to be able to have the the um, distinct. Um, uh, ex- experience and um, benefit of hearing uh, his lecture this evening and also um, during the day to be able to interact with him on a more informal uh, basis. Um, so what I'd like to do now is turn the podium over to Associate Prof- Professor of Architecture and Urban Design, Nicholas DeMoncho, um, who will introduce Paul. Nicholas. Hi. Uh, my name is Nicholas DeMoncho, uh, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Paul Goldberger to you this afternoon. Um, and in so doing, I also have to apologize for breaking what me- must be one of the cardinal rules of these introductions, um, which is talking about myself, uh, albeit very briefly. Um, the relevant fact here being that my twin brother, Thomas, like Paul, makes his living, albeit as a less distinguished, architecture critic which in turn relates to the reason why I am not an architecture critic, which is that it is too hard. And not just for the obvious reasons to do with today's shifting landscape of media, but hard for a much more long-standing reason, which has to do with the nature of the critic and the nature of the architectural profession itself. So much of our current contemporary consciousness of design as a culture is thanks to the increasingly instrumental and influential role of design in, ch- changing our, in shaping our changing personal relationship to technology. From this, of course, is born a new and proliferating kind of design criticism, endlessly parsing the interface and logic of consumer devices, um, Apple's chief amongst them. But architecture's uh, great difficulty is everything to do with its profound difference from such consumed objects, which is why the architecture critic must play a much more profound role. Unlike Apple Watches, the very powerful people who pay for buildings are often, uh, more often than not, not those who have to use them or live with them. And the architects who design them have actually highly variable ability to control either the largest or most detailed components of their design and can rarely risk offending those for whom they might build, as it's said, in the future. And the legacy of this imperfect mix of causation and responsibility becomes the collective landscape of the city and its ecology with which we all must live for far longer than a building's circumstances of origin hold true. Into this landscape steps the architecture critic, who must alternately be friend and enemy to client, architect, and public alike, standing up for and recognizing quality in not just design, but also patronage and public ethics, and also noting, where necessary, its absence. This is a minefield, and few have negotiated it so successfully as our guest tonight. Paul Goldberger's career began at the New York Times, where his criticism earned him in 1984 the Pulitzer Prize. There are many, many other awards, which I will not list because I've talked too long already. Um, His career continued at the New Yorker, and most recently uh, to his role as contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Throughout his career, Goldberger has tirelessly acted as advocate, observer, public proxy, and cultural curator across these many constituencies and actors who bring together the the contemporary city into being. And not just in New York, but across the folds and contours of what is increasingly becoming a global conversation about the city as well. 
Now, of course, as well as teaching the public through his writing, he has also had a career as a leader and educator in the academy that would, on its own, put many of us to shame, as Dean at Parsons and now the Joseph Urban Chair in Design and Architecture at the New School. To me, however, Goldberger's particular achievement has been to extend the short and singular nature of the classic critic's column into a more extended, trenchant observations in the form of many, many books. Unlike the work of lots of critics, these are not compendia, but extended intellectual and erudite observations, not just on the shape of the city, but also on the forces shaping it. From the early prescient on the rise, to the timely up from zero, to 2009's Why Architecture Matters, to his most recent forthcoming biography of Frank Gehry. Throughout these, Goldberger's career and intellect continue to point towards the fundamental role of the critic, yet with a depth and eloquence that few critics accomplish which is to say they distinguish between success and excellence, they make legible what is inscrutable, they judge what is wanting, but above all, they extend uh, in patron, public, and designer equally our sense of what is possible and even necessary for architecture to accomplish. Please join me in welcoming Paul Goldberger here this afternoon. Thank you so much, Dean Walsh and Professor Dumontchaux. Uh, those incredibly generous words. Uh, actually, they remind me of something that Lyndon Johnson said when he received an equally kind introduction, which was how sorry he was that his parents were not here to hear it. His father, because he would have uh, been amused by it, and his mother because she would have believed it. So anyway, I feel very much the same. Thank you. Uh, yesterday I said a word or two at the beginning about uh, how honored I am to be part of the extraordinary legacy of the Hitchcock series. Uh, I said that not aware that Joseph Hudnut had delivered two and a half times the number of lectures that I'm doing. Uh, my only hope is that he didn't attend as many classes in studios so that at least we, we, we even out that way. Um, yesterday in the first part of what I suppose could be considered an investigation into the current challenges facing the city, I talked about what I called the generic city. And while all was not doom and gloom, the point of the talk was I will be the first to admit, a little bit downbeat. The forces of technology, for all the good they are doing us in so many ways, are also powerfully speeding up the homogenization of culture that has been a force in the world for some time, and which seems now to be unstoppable. How cities can retain, let alone create, a distinct identity when there is little incentive other than tourism to look and feel different is an enormous challenge. Today I want to talk about the other side of the coin, the more positive aspect of cities as they are evolving in the information and technology culture, which is the growing belief that cities, which since time immemorial have been incubators for creative ideas, a history that no one has tracked more thoroughly and with more erudition than Sir Peter Hall, that they are still where creative people seek to be. 
Not everyone, of course, believes this to be true. I recall reading a dialogue between the management guru Tom Peters and the writer George Gilder in Forbes magazine on whether technology would mean an end to cities as we know them or would give them a continued future. Gilder saw no point to the old city, which he saw only as a tired relic of the industrial age. He celebrated the way in which electronic communication was rapidly making it, in his view, obsolete. You no longer have to be there, Gilder argued, so why would you want to? It's dark, dirty, noisy, and crowded. Talk to everyone by email and look out your window at trees. Much nicer, right? Peters, like Sir Peter Hall in his Hitchcock lecture, it would seem, took a more measured and ultimately wiser view, pointing out that, as he put it, there is a fundamental human dimension of, of real contact that cannot happen on the Internet and which real cities were designed to facilitate and still do. The richness, the exuberant variety of cities is the fount of economic creativity and business growth, Peters said. I agree with Peters, but I think it's obvious that the nature of the city is changing, even if it is not, as Gilder predicted, becoming obsolete. The city is not economically necessary in the way that it once was. Markets can function without it. No matter how much we may love cities, we cannot pretend that they are necessary for the transaction of business or the movement of capital as they once were. As the sociologist Saskia Sassin has written, the computerized workplace can be located anywhere, in a clerical factory in the Bahamas or at a home in the suburbs. The growth of information industries has made it possible for outputs to be transmitted around the globe instantaneously. The globalization of economic activity suggests that place, particularly the kind of place represented by cities, no longer matters. But Sassin went on to point out that this is not, in fact, what has happened. There's a paradox. The very forces that were supposed to eliminate the city have turned out to make at least some cities more important than ever. National and global markets, as well as globally integrated operations, require central places where the work of globalization gets done. She points out certain cities, New York, London, Hong Kong, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Sydney, Sao Paulo, Frankfurt, to name some of the major ones, are nodes in an international system that has made them critically important around the world and has even given them a kind of identity that is distinct from that of the nations of which they are a part. They are global cities more connected in many ways to each other than to the geographical regions that surround them. So we could say that if cities are not economically necessary in the way that they were, they are economically necessary in a different way a way that has only been enhanced, not diminished, by the technology of the 21st century. I think we could say that in, a, in another way as well, which is to say that cities are more entrenched in our culture than they were, say, 50 years ago. They're more culturally necessary than ever. And we can see that in the, that in the greater energy that is now present in the downtown centers of cities that come nowhere near belonging in the class of global financial centers. There's more going on in Boston and Chicago and Charlotte and Austin than there was a few years ago. 
even though those cities don't qualify as belonging in the class of mega international financial centers that transcend their own geographical regions. By talking about the city as culturally necessary today, I mean something much more than that they are needed as places in which culture is housed or consumed. Cities do provide a home for culture, yes. But I'm not talking about the fact that they are where the ballet or the opera or the art museum choose to locate. I mean culture in the broadest sense. Culture is meaning our ethos, our civilization, how we define ourselves. I think that cities feed the culture today. The idea of urbanism is itself, for many people, a cultural experience. The fact of being in the city is now, for many people, as satisfying and broadening a cultural experience as going to the theater or an art museum. A younger generation engages with the city in a different way, and I think a more participatory way than their predecessors. It is not afraid of the city, since it knows primarily a city that is safe and prosperous, if less diverse than it once was. And for all kinds of reasons, the generation under 40 is less inclined to see the city only as a place to work, as their parents or grandparents might have, and see it instead as a place in which to live and to play. If, that is, they can afford it. I will come back to this point in a moment, the increasing economic inequalities of the city, the way in which the city, by making so many things visible and manifest before our very eyes, inevitably places the national problem of income inequality in especially high relief. For now, however, let's observe only that, as I just said, San Francisco and Boston and Chicago and Austin and Pittsburgh and Denver and even, astonishingly, Detroit, not to mention global cities like New York and London, possess a level of vibrancy that is far greater than even a few years ago and in complete conflict with what the anti-urban anti theorists predicted. But Richard Florida's theory that the renewal of cities is fueled by a new so-called creative class of young people misses the point, I think. The glib phrase creative class has now entered the language, but it does not explain everything. I think there are a lot of things behind the renewal of cities and the presence of the so-called creative class is not a cause. It is more in the line of an effect of the enormous rise in the financial services industry. We may not believe that our movement away from an industrial economy and toward a financial services economy has always been a positive thing for society, but it is impossible to deny that it accounts for at least as much if not more urban growth than the eagerness of younger, more creative people to be in urban areas. The reality is that what has been called a creative class, the creative class, is far from entirely creative. A young analyst working on Wall Street wants to live in the city and partake of a certain kind of life. That she does is good for society, I believe, better than if she had retreated to the suburbs. But does it make her creative? Perhaps it is fair to say that this economic and social class is more receptive to creativity than their parents' or grandparents' generations were. 
And that's the difference. They are more sophisticated. They like better food. They are at ease with technology. They are not suspicious of modern art or modern furniture. It is surely not that they are all artists. There are not enough poets and writers and painters and dancers and actors to fill all of these new condominium towers in cities all around the globe. And if there were, 99% of those creative people wouldn't be able to afford them. There is a marketplace for creativity or a desire to be in an environment that embraces creativity. That is certainly the case today in cities around the world. Again, if you define the creative class as the market for creativity as opposed to the people doing the creating, then the notion of the creative class as behind the urban revival may make some sense. But if you take the phrase literally to mean the people designing, writing, painting, acting, and so forth, well, there are a lot of them, yes, but not nearly enough to fuel the urban revival that we have been experiencing in many cities in the last two decades. So the ubiquitous creative class label flatters the consumers of creativity by equating them with the creators. Either that, or it naively assumes that the world we live in so believes in creativity that it compensates filmmakers and artists and teachers and dancers the way it compensates financial analysts and bankers. And if you believe that, well, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn if you do. Nothing, of course, could be farther from the truth. In fact, things are moving in the other direction toward less equality of income, not more. And many of the truly creative people, the artists and writers and actors and filmmakers, have been priced out of the creative cities that, by Richard Florida's measure, belong to them and that they have helped to revive. What young writer now can afford to live in New York or San Francisco? Yesterday, I talked of beginning my own career in New York in the economically depressed 1970s, which turned out to be a weirdly great gift to me and my family. It allowed me to raise children in the city in a way that, as a journalist and academic, I could almost surely not have afforded to do. Those days, as we've said, are long gone. In San Francisco, as much as New York, where the neighborhoods you once were afraid to walk in, you now can't afford. I was in London last week, and it is exactly the same thing. The pace of gentrification has so accelerated that we seem almost to be skipping over the point of equilibrium, where a neighborhood is a diverse mixture of older residents, new arrivals who bring a different kind of sophistication, families, creative people, and a smattering of business folk. Instead, the process of gentrification seems less a benign engine of gradual upgrade than a bulldozer that figuratively and sometimes also literally seems to crush what is in its path. And it hardly helps, of course, that technology has upended the market for much creative work, especially in the fields of writing and music, where the pie is now vastly smaller, meaning creative people have less, not more money at their disposal, even as they try to cope 
in this new hyperinflated market. What I experienced in New York in the 1970s, when good real estate was accessible to professional people at a wider range of income, and hence, and this is the really important thing, at a wider range of types of profession, is no longer to be found there, or in San Francisco, or Boston, or Los Angeles, where, all, where urban housing seems increasingly out of the grasp of all but the most highly compensated of the younger generation. In New York, that means finance, mostly, with a smattering of tech. In San Francisco, it means tech, mostly, with a smattering of finance. But this is a distinction without a difference. To buy urban real estate cheaply, you now have to go to Detroit, where many of the truly creative, who now cannot afford even to live in Brooklyn, move west to set themselves up in an affordable urban environment. This is another example of creative people with limited resources jumping in to take advantage of a disadvantaged economy and in so doing help to turn it around. It is profoundly exciting to see this happening and the resurgence of Detroit as a creative center is pleasing in every way. But it should not, I think, be considered a true revival of the city. As pleasing, even heartwarming, as the creative resurgence of Detroit is, there will never be enough to it to equal the jobs that have been lost and to bring the city back to the place it once was. Yes, the arts are critical to the urban economy, but more from the standpoint of consumption than creativity. And consumption in the visual arts means tourists coming to the Metropolitan Museum or the marketplace of the art auctions at Sotheby's and Christie's. It does not mean the creative act itself. I doubt that Detroit will ever again have the muscle economically to be a major consumer of culture. It is great that it is filling up with young creative people who've been displaced from Brooklyn by the vast army of financial services workers who now seek to live in so-called creative environments. But it is hard for me to see how this alone will turn Detroit around. Detroit's revival, and let's put that in quotes, is fine such as it is. But if it cannot be directly connected to a broader kind of economic growth, I'm not sure what it will ever amount to. And I say that being aware of the noble effort of a company like Shinola, which you may have heard of, which is committed to bringing manufacturing back to Detroit and makes watches, bicycles, and leather goods of decent quality and then markets the hell out of them with a brilliant advertising campaign that encourages those of us with a commitment to urban revival to believe that we are helping this effort by buying a $500 quartz watch that has been assembled in Detroit, although not, in fact, literally made there because the movement is imported from Switzerland. I will say, while we're on that subject, that I'm of two minds about Shinola, which positions itself as an earnest, scrappy manufacturer determined to swim upstream against the tide, but which is actually a division of a huge private conglomerate called Bedrock Brands, the same company that owns Fossil Watches, and which has based its entire marketing plan 
on the notion that there are enough people who think the idea of something made in Detroit is now cool so that they will spend $500 on a $100 watch with a handsome retro face. Shinola spent millions of dollars on a retail outlet in Tribeca in lower Manhattan, which has been so successful, it reportedly met its first year sales goal within the first month. Affluent young professionals apparently love the idea of buying something made in Detroit, so long as it is not a car, I suppose, which I'm sure they believe still needs to be made in Munich or Stuttgart to be valid. But jobs are jobs, and Shinola does keep a lot of people busy in Detroit, assembling these things, and that is all to the good, even if it is not the true, earnest startup it so brilliantly advertises itself as being. And if this is marketing as much as reality, I do think there is something significant to the fact that you can market the idea of made in Detroit. That people, whoever they are, and wherever they are, will want to buy it. That would not have happened a few years ago. Even Chrysler, as you may have seen, has tried to market the same idea, and at one point tried an advertising campaign that referred to its cars as imported from Detroit. Clever, although I don't think it made much difference or led anyone to replace their BMW with a Chrysler. That slogan morphed into America's import, much more vague, even slightly ambiguous, and it should be noticed, noted minus the mention of Detroit. If sophisticated young watch buyers and cyclists find the idea of made in Detroit to be cool, the far bigger market of automobile buyers does not. Chrysler's inability to duplicate the Shinola marketing idea shows us, I think, that this is all a kind of niche market and reminds us, as I said a moment ago, that whatever it is that is happening in Detroit and however good it is, it is far too marginal to the economy to truly turn around an entire large city. In reality, most manufacturing takes place far away from cities now. Some of it takes place far away from our entire country, from our continent, and as we all know, has moved to Asia. Much of the industrial manufacturing that does still happen in the U.S. is in the South, where labor and other costs are lower, and governments fall all over themselves to offer corporations incentives to open factories. The questionable wisdom of that is a subject for another day. For now, let's say only that it is unlikely that manufacturing will return on a large scale to any large established city in this country or elsewhere in the world, and that cities need to find another basis for their economy as they move forward. The vast growth of the financial services, legal services, media, healthcare, and educational industries, and they are all industries, suggests that these things will be the city's salvation, since so much employment in these fields is concentrated in urban areas. It's a reasonable assumption, and I'm not here today to say that it is wrong. But I do worry, nevertheless, that the evolution of our cities into service centers staffed by upscale professionals, clean and appealing though it may be, is also a reminder that many of the elements we all like in our cities today exist at the pleasure of these groups, not to serve a broader range of the population. 
These professional sectors, we could think of them as being the very consumers of culture I was referring to a couple of minutes ago, like to concentrate themselves in urban areas, but they do not do that because they truly have to be there, but because they like the aura of culture and urban activity. They seem to be rejecting the world of the suburbs with its dependency on the automobile and its elevation of private space above the public realm. They seem to favor the urban culture and the stimulation it brings. This is a good thing. It would be absurd to argue that it is not. But, and there is always a but, the city does not exist solely for them. And that is another paradox of our urban life today, that the new economy of technology and international finance requires an underside of low-paying jobs to sustain it. The cleaners and the cooks and the bakers and the drivers and the chambermaids and the nannies and so forth. And that these people are paid at the very lowest end of the scale, meaning that there is more and more disparity between incomes in the new city of the 21st century. The immigrants who toil beneath the glittery surface of the new city and struggle to survive in it are often hardly visible, in part because they almost invariably cannot afford to live anywhere near the glamorous center. And that center in many cities, for all its life and bright, upbeat, don't we love the city energy, is, as urban cultures go, a bit too easy, a bit too homogeneous, a bit too defined by this young urban professional class and by its even richer cousin, the international global rich, who invest in condominiums all over the place and fly from New York to Abu Dhabi to London to Hong Kong and Sao Paulo and back again, keeping the real estate markets hot, but using cities less as true places than as concrete versions of safe deposit boxes, places in which to safely stash cash. The real estate market in many cities today is a product less of local needs than of international economics, of currency markets, and the need for cash to have an occasional place to rest as it washes across the globe. That is not necessarily the healthiest basis on which to build a city. I would like to believe that the major buildings in our skylines exist as something other than pure investment vehicles. Though buildings have always existed partially for that reason, it has rarely been their sole reason for being, as it so often seems to be today, when so many new buildings seem to be physical embodiments of the movements of global capital that the cities themselves represent. The demand that so many condominium towers fulfill, especially in New York and Hong Kong, but also in Vancouver and San Francisco and London and Shanghai and Moscow, is not the demand for places to live, but the demand for places in which to invest excess cash. Many of these places, as you surely know, are barely occupied. And while these, these buildings now dominate the skyline, in New York, the very latest 432 Park Avenue is taller than the Empire State Building, 
So I am not talking about trivial structures that we can ignore. While these buildings dominate the skyline, their occupants surely do not populate the sidewalks. They add surprisingly little to the ongoing life of the city once their owners have enriched the building's developers by purchasing their apartments for vast sums, they seem to do little else with them. Jonathan Miller, a prominent New York real estate appraiser, put it best when he called these apartments safe deposit boxes in the sky, places where people put their valuables and then rarely visit. The city of such buildings is not the city we aspire to and it is surely not the creative city. It is booming economically, but is it healthy economically? By now we should know, I think, that these two are not the same thing. I think we've already seen that for all the short-term good there is in rising real estate values, too much wealth is making our cities less diverse and that it can sometimes make them less energetic not more energetic, less the kind of places in which real creativity is inspired. The city of zillion-dollar condos isn't making culture any more than it is making automobiles or anything else. It is just consuming it, and it isn't even doing very much of that if its occupants aren't there most of the time. I'm not entirely sure what we can do about this, because no city no matter how determined its leaders may be, can control economic forces that are increasingly not local or even national, but global. But we can be more aggressive, I think, in seeking to limit the extent to which pure investment vehicles dominate the skyline and squeeze out the very urban life that they claim, often disingenuously, to be reinforcing. For a time, I used to worry that the destiny of our cities was not to be derelict places that no one wanted to visit, as we feared a generation ago, but places that everyone wants to visit, but no one has to be in because they no longer have an essential purpose. That in this age of urban infatuation, we are at risk of developing 20th, 21st century versions of Venice or Amsterdam, wonderful glorious places that exist mainly for people to stroll around in and comment on how wonderful and glorious they are. Now, that is better than the South Bronx of the 1970s, of course, but that's not the point. The point is that we want the city to be more than just entertaining, but necessary. I don't want the city to be a theme park, fun to walk around in when you need to take a break, but not a place where real life and real work take place. I do feel that even so many of the good things we celebrate in cities today, the sheer joy of walking around, the pleasures of shopping, the exhilaration of people watching, and the visual variety that always brings surprise, even these things can sometimes encourage us to think of the city only as a thing for entertainment and thus make us dance on the edge of the theme park. In the theme park, we only consume, we never create. We look and we are entertained. We are safely away from the stresses and tensions and forces 
by which things are made, the clashes and pressures out of which culture and ideas come. As Charles Moore pointed out 50 years ago in his classic essay, You Have to Pay for the Public Life, which foresaw all of this, Disneyland's popularity came in part because it satisfied the urban impulse, an impulse otherwise absent in Southern California. It satisfied that urban impulse in a safe and contained way. Now, the theme park, of course, is supposed to be without challenge, and that is fine if we're on a play break. But the real city was never supposed to be without challenge. It ought to be at least a little bit difficult, at least a little bit dirty, at least a little bit messy. The city we celebrate today often strikes me as too clean, too neat, too packaged, too managed, too easy. If we think that kind of city, the city of shopping and entertainment, is a place out of which great culture and great creativity will come, I fear that we will be sadly mistaken. Now, all of that said, I don't want to fall into the trap of believing that there ever was an ideal urban era where creativity flowed and the forces of capital and of culture were in perfect equilibrium. It is useful, I think, to look back at Paris in the mid-19th century, a time that we are accustomed to thinking of as an era of great urban life, as a time when whatever the complex political picture of Europe may have been, there was at least an urban culture that flourished and triumphed over both politics and capital. Well, think again. In fact, Paris's golden age, which did in so many ways define our sense of what an urban place should be, was also a time of incredible struggle over modernity and real estate development and tension between financial power and the arts. Baron Haussmann, charged by the emperor with, rebuild, with updating Paris, which in many ways in the middle of the 19th century was still a rather medieval city, cut through great boulevards and engaged in ambitious public works, and in so doing, defined the Paris we know and love today. But he also threw neighborhoods, in, indeed the entire pattern of the city, into turmoil. Progress was seen by most people then as the enemy of culture, as a set of forces that were selling out the city to moneyed interests. And there seemed to be little room for artists, shopkeepers, craftspeople, indeed, for workers of any kind. Let me quote for a moment from T.J. Clark's great study of 19th century Paris, The Painting of Modern Life, in which he writes that, and I quote, in place of the crumbling houses where the tailors and the coppersmiths had lived, the builders of boulevards, avid to recoup their costs, had put up lavish blocks of apartments with stone moldings and ironwork balconies and running water. The rents of such places were impossibly steep, and the rents of the rest of the neighborhood followed them upwards. By Haussmann's own estimate, rents in the center of the city doubled between 1851 and 1857, and they went on climbing thereafter. The working class began to complain. 
It was argued that in place of one Paris, Haussmann had made two. The accusation was linked with the issue of high rents and the plight of those who had lost a place to live in the city. Haussmann, the critics said, had built the Boulevard Malesherbes as a kind of thoroughfare for speculation. He had laid out the inhumane avenues around the Etoile. This was the city of courtesans and bull markets. Here was ostentation, not luxury, frippery, not fashion, consumption, not trade. Observers agreed that in some important sense, the city was more inflexibly classed and divided than ever before. That one was entering the age of the residential district and the industrial suburb. You don't have to dig deep to find an echo of this today in contemporary San Francisco, where the pressure to make the city work for the needs of tech companies has led to equally bitter battles over displacement and long public debates as to who the city is actually for. But there's something else that's going on here, and it gets us right to the heart of the role of the city as a so-called creative environment. And that is the relationship between San Francisco and the world of Silicon Valley to our south, where it can sometimes feel as if we are coming to have something akin to the residential district and industrial suburb that T.J. Clark observed in Paris in Haussmann's time. Of course, Silicon Valley is no normal industrial suburb. It is where more wealth has been created than anywhere in the world, and where a form of creativity, creativity in technology, flourishes, even amid urban sprawl and, as I said yesterday, a far more conventional suburban landscape than anyone there wants to admit. So if we fast forward from Paris to our own time, which is the real model for a place that inspires creativity today? The example of Silicon Valley that suggests that traditional cities are obsolete in an age of mass communication? Or that of ever more prosperous and luxurious San Francisco? Actually, for that same comparison, I could have used the evidence of Silicon Alley, as people have been calling Lower Manhattan, which now has a huge concentration of tech businesses itself, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Here in the Bay Area, what I find remarkable is how many young workers in the tech industry today have no desire to live in the Valley, even if they work there. They prefer to live in San Francisco, to be like the rich Parisians who segregated themselves in Haussmann's luxurious city, although in this case they are different from the rich Parisians who never had to dirty their hands by going to the industrial neighborhoods since the young workers in the tech industry are the very people powering the workforces of Silicon Valley. This, of course, is why all of the major companies in the Valley now operate huge fleets of private luxury buses that shuttle back and forth between San Francisco and the Valley, sparing these privileged employees the unpleasantness of a commute along the crowded freeway. As all of you who live here probably know, the buses are sleek, enormous, and unmarked except for electronic lettering over the windshield indicating which neighborhood in San Francisco the bus is bound for. Mission, Noe Valley, Castro, Potrero Hill. Most of them are white. The Apple buses, not surprisingly, are silver. They carry bicycles, and it goes without saying that they're Wi-Fi equipped. 
when an employee gets on the Apple or Facebook or Google bus in the morning, he or she is considered to be at work. Google alone transports upwards of 3,000 employees a day on its bus service, which is now so extensive it ranks among the larger public transportation systems in the state of California. The buses have become a necessity for Silicon Valley, not because they expand the workday modestly, but because it was the only way they could attract and retain workers who might otherwise have balked at the 40-mile commute. A 28-year-old living in Noe Valley is more likely to be willing to spend time on a luxurious bus with Wi-Fi than to want to sit behind the wheel of a car on 101 or to make his way to downtown San Francisco to take a commuter train that will deposit him at a station that is still likely to be several miles from where he works. The big intercity buses have become the travel system of choice, so much so that Craigslist ads for apartments now carry lines like Genentech, Google, and Apple buses within a block, which signals a location that is a lot more meaningful to potential tenants than proximity to the public transit system. Let me talk for a moment about the growing preference of younger workers to live in the city, since it represents a vast shift in the culture of the tech industry, and its effect is only beginning to be understood. Silicon Valley grew up around a certain university. I don't remember what it's called. Uh, I think a, a University of Palo Alto or something like that, I think. Uh, which until a few years ago seemed to have only the most tenuous relationship to San Francisco. The law firms and venture capital firms that emerged around the tech industry located along Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park in quarters that were posher than the startups, but every bit as suburban. The Rosewood Sand Hill, the luxury hotel, whose restaurant is to the tech industry what Michael's in New York is to the media industry, is a sprawling, low-rise resort that looks as if it could be in a prosperous Midwestern suburb, but for the slight overlay of buzz that fills the dining room and the fact that the parking lot has more BMWs and Audis not to mention Teslas, than you would find in Kansas City. If you were a venture capitalist or corporate executive in that industry, you were likely to live in Atherton or Woodside. If you were a young software engineer, you lived in a garden apartment in Mountain View or Cupertino. And other than big events like Macworld Expo and the like, much of Silicon Valley acted as if San Francisco were as distant as Los Angeles. The high cost and limited availability of housing in the Silicon Valley towns may have had something to do with the gradual shift toward San Francisco, but it's not as though housing were either plentiful or cheap in San Francisco either, which, of course, as all of you know, has long been one of the most expensive cities in the country. What is really fueling it is the much larger trend that we've been talking about of younger professionals expressing a preference for urban living, even after they start families. If the simplistic phrase, creative class, does not explain everything about the resurgence of older urban neighborhoods all across the country, it does connect to why a 30-year-old video game designer would now rather live in San Francisco than Mountain View, whatever the commute. At this point, 
the tech company's bus services are not just a convenience, they're an essential recruiting tool for the Valley's major employers, a piece of infrastructure on which the massive exercise in reverse commuting that has come to define Silicon Valley depends. The connection between Silicon Valley and San Francisco seems to be deepening all the time in unexpected ways. It's no longer a case of city versus suburb. If anything, their traditional roles have been reversed since the Valley, with its big tech companies, now represents the region's main economic engine, while the city acts as the place of entertainment, relaxation, socializing, and sleep. The journalist and blogger Ken Lane wrote not long ago in the online journal The All, San Francisco, with its leafy parks and charming row houses and distinct villages and restaurants and commuters fleeing every morning to work, is the Brooklyn to an as-yet unbuilt Manhattan. Again, it is the 19th century Paris that Haussmann created. This city-suburb inversion is fascinating because it suggests that the city, that to some extent, that the city has already become the magnetic artifact that exists to give pleasure, not to be a potent creative force. The Valley's richest entrepreneurs have always seen San Francisco that way. Some of them bought houses in Pacific Heights years ago and some of the other cities' posh districts as weekend getaways, starting the inverted pattern of looking at Silicon Valley's suburban landscape as the messy, work-oriented place you wanted to get away from and the city as the pleasanter place to which you escaped. But the torrent of 20 and 30-somethings wanting to live in San Francisco full-time now is a much more recent development with its implications far broader than a few dozen billionaires buying fancy houses on Pacific Heights. It says a lot more about how cities aren't essential as the kind of marketplaces they once were when you needed the city as a place to do business. You can do business anywhere, as we've said, and as the success of Silicon Valley proves. But the things the city does offer, a lively, diverse environment, full of visual stimulation, culture, food, and all kinds of people, is exactly what suburbs can't provide, even when they get as rich and successful as the ones in Silicon Valley. Kenneth Lane further said in that article in The All, as disappointed visitors and new employees discover, Silicon Valley is a dull and ugly landscape of low-rise stucco office parks and immense traffic-clogged boulevards. The fancy restaurants are in strip malls. There is nothing to do, nowhere to go. That's surely why more and more startups and small to medium-sized companies are locating in San Francisco instead of Silicon Valley. When I wrote about that phenomenon last year for Vanity Fair, it was clear that the city itself had become the most powerful recruiting tool a lot of companies could ask for. The younger people want to be in the city. A veteran of Google who now manages public relations for Twitter told me. And if you follow the news across the Bay with any degree of attention, you know the story of Twitter, which has been based in San Francisco since it was founded in 2007, and which, when it decided it needed new space, took over three floors in a vast, empty, art-moderne building 
a originally a furniture mart on a seedy section of Market Street not far from the San Francisco City Hall. From the reaction in the neighborhood, you would have thought it was Google and not Twitter that arrived in 2011, since within a few months of the company's announcement, construction started on two condominium towers on nearby sites. The rest of the old furniture mart was rented to other tenants, and some nearby buildings went into renovation. Twitter had kissed the neighborhood, and it went from being a frog to a prince inside of a few months. This has been controversial, as you probably also know, since the rocket speed gentrification of this part of the city has been, to use the tech industry's favorite word, disruptive. What it is disrupting, of course, is not other technology, but people. People who can no longer afford to live there because their neighborhood is like a rug that has been pulled out from under them in what has seemed like an instant. This is all too reminiscent of Haussmann's remaking of Paris, and it is not good for the diversity that the city needs. But I am inclined to feel that it is ultimately worth it for the survival of the city, because the coming of much of the tech industry to San Francisco has also revived the city as a creative center and made it a place of work. That's important for reasons that go far beyond the politician's desire for tax receipts. Job creation holds the city back from the fate of sliding into the beautiful, alluring irrelevance of Venice, or the equally beautiful and profound, but no longer creatively essential city, Amsterdam. Now, I can see that there's a certain irony in saying that the tech explosion keeps San Francisco real, since I know that gaining this reality, the reality of having a vibrant, creative economy, is coming at the cost of another reality, which is the reality of diversity. That is increasingly the fate of the creative city today. It is a struggle, a constant struggle, to balance a meaningful and productive economy against the roughness, the grittiness, the complexity, the diversity of the city at its best. In the case of San Francisco, there is one particular benefit, or maybe we can say rationalization, which is that the most powerful economic forces, those of the tech industry, are by and large creative forces, or at least partially creative forces. The game designers and the software designers are not poets and actors and painters who need to work as waiters while they wait to make some scant money from the arts that they are passionate about. Here, the creative people are part of the economic engine and that makes a tremendous amount of difference. We could say the same for the slice of New York, what is called Silicon Alley, since so many tech firms have located there as well, and Google now has more employees in Manhattan than anywhere in the world other than its headquarters in Mountain View. That said, the creative tech industry in New York is still overwhelmed by the financial services industry which is still the economic bellwether. If you put these two things together, the huge financial services industry and the growing presence of a tech industry, 
You have a gargantuan market for culture in New York, the largest in the nation and perhaps the world, and one that also includes another realm besides technology that is often mistakenly overlooked when people talk about creativity in the city, which is the world of fashion design. But still, when you put all of it together, you have an overwhelmingly large market of people there who consume culture and want to live in a so-called creative environment, only a very few of whom are actually creating culture. This puts the cost of the city out of reach of almost every artist, architect, writer, dancer, musician, filmmaker, and actor. And that is not getting any better. Where do these people go? For a while, as we said, it was Brooklyn. And now that Brooklyn, too, has become so expensive, some of them, as I said a few minutes ago, are going to Detroit. Before we despair, let's keep in mind that the universe of urban neighborhoods was once a lot smaller and that Brooklyn was a very different place 40 years ago. We can all make jokes about the artisanal food culture of Williamsburg and the furniture makers and fancy bars and boutique hotels, but it is not, for the larger life of the city, such a bad thing. And Williamsburg, like so much of the rest of Brooklyn, not to mention Jersey City and Hoboken across the river and Harlem in Manhattan, are better places than they were. It is the fate of creative people, in part, to find new places and to settle in them and begin a process of change that in time the mainstream adopts. We saw it in Soho in New York, the mother of all urban gentrification, 50 years ago, as the artists came in and took over old loft buildings that had been abandoned by the manufacturing industries for which they had been built but which no longer wanted them. A neighborhood of intense creative energy was built within what was one of the greatest concentrations of historic architecture in the United States and which had been all but ignored before. It was preserved and real estate values rose, at which point the artists who made it all possible could no longer afford to be there. Now many of them, of course, in time no longer wanted to be there, since it had lost so much of its edge and become, in part, a shrine to consumerism and chic, not to creativity. The edge moved elsewhere. Now, I've just compressed a complex, decades-long history into a couple of sentences, but it is basically what happened, and it does show us that the process of urban growth and change is one of constant movement. The edge is always moving elsewhere. Cities cannot be static. That, perhaps, is the most important thing, that cities are living things, and that for the city to be a viable environment for creativity, it has to change and evolve, and that change will inevitably involve its most creative people, because they are almost always the people on the edge, and the edge always moves. The creative people see new things, which often means new places. They are frequently not only on the edge of 
thinking and perceiving, but on the economic edge, unable to afford the ever more expensive center. But a lot of the time, it is driven by their vision and their willingness to go outside of what before that time had been considered the acceptable bounds of places to live, as they did in Soho and in so many other places. Now, I realize this can seem like an excessively romantic view and might also be taken as condoning much of what has happened in the last generation that has put our greatest cities out of reach of the creative people who we need most to be in them since it is the creative people, the makers of art, and not just the consumers of it, who keep cities from becoming theme parks, the places of artifice that they often threaten to become. I'm not arguing for complacency here or suggesting that we do not need to be proactive and fight to keep the city more diverse, both economically and culturally. We need as we once did not need to continually intervene to maintain the very things that the city once created naturally. You know, Jane Jacobs argued against planners and politicians in the 50s and 60s because every time planners and politicians intervened, she pointed out, they destroyed that natural equilibrium of good urban neighborhoods that they considered blighted like Greenwich Village. Today, however, leaving it alone will no longer give us that diverse, balanced neighborhood and equilibrium. It's a paradox, but it's an urgent one that today we must intervene to maintain what once, in fact, we needed to refrain from intervening to protect. But so while I'm not at all arguing for complacency. I'm merely trying to observe that creativity in the city, like everything else, is subject to large, often global forces, and that the artist, as much as the banker, is inevitably part of a larger system that is not of his or her making, and which brings both good and bad things in its wake. We come back, in the end, to what makes the city work. And that is proximity, human contact, the ability to see each other, to be reminded at every moment that we are part of a large and complex human endeavor, which in the city is not just a theoretical concept. It is something we see evidence of all the time in front of us, and I believe that affects us profoundly. The role of the city, the role of any city to put it as bluntly as possible, is to be a common place, to be common ground, and as such, to support us and to stimulate us. Lewis Mumford, the greatest architectural critic of the last century, gave us a description of the city that stands in stunning and eloquent contrast to the argument that the city is outdated in our technological age. Now, Mumford said, the greatest function of the city is to permit, indeed to encourage and incite, the greatest possible number of meetings, encounters, challenges between all persons, classes, and groups, providing, as it were, a stage upon which the drama of social life may be enacted 
with the actors taking their turns as spectators and the spectators as actors. Notice that Mumford spoke of the city not only in terms of meetings and encounters, but also of challenges. He knew that the city is difficult and did not attempt to pretend otherwise to argue that it is the easiest route. But he knew that in meeting challenge, there is also a kind of satisfaction that cannot come from easy routes and that the challenge the city represents can, at its best, be ennobling. And that is what fuels creativity today as much as it ever has in the past. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for such a stimulating lecture. We do have time for some questions. Um, and anyone who would like to uh, address um, Mr. Goldberger should come up right here to the front. Hi, thank you very much for uh, two very, very stimulating uh, lectures. I, I wonder if I could uh, turn this around a little bit. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get this out properly, but one of the things that struck me from the uh, things you've said is that in, in many ways the period which we romanticize as the, um, the, the heyday of the city was in fact an anomaly. And I'm thinking of, I don't know, uh, Thomas Piketty's view of capitalism and that the post-war boom and equality and suburbanization were essentially an anomaly within the history of market capitalism. And back to your, your uh, example of Belle Epoque, um, mm -hmm. uh, Paris. I mean, just think of La Boheme. The, the artists were all right. starving, right? right. right. Um, so in, in a funny way, uh, you seem to be saying, or it seems to be the case, that, that perhaps cities to succeed in the way we traditionally think of them succeeding requires substantial income inequality. And that's not a or it's inevitable that cities will evolve in that direction, which they seem to be doing. And I'd also like you to comment on the, the uh, opposite side of this, is, which is the rise and fall of the suburbs, which is the other side of this, right, which is during that period where cities were failing, suburbs were booming, now that uh, income inequality is returned, cities are, are booming, and suburbs look like they're headed towards poverty, really, ultimately. So it's an interesting question. So. It's a very interesting question, and not, not one easily answered in a concise way. Um, I think it's, it's as difficult to generalize about suburbs as about cities. Uh, obviously, you, I mean, if we're to, Atherton and Woodside are one kind of suburb, and, you know, uh, uh, Richmond is another. I mean, it, it, there are, it's... it's and then and Berkeley, of course, has its own rules anyway and always has, so, uh, and follows no patterns of any kind. Uh, but I think many older, closer-in suburbs are, in fact, in great difficulty uh, and are turning out to be, in many ways, the equivalent of uh, a lot of older inner-city neighborhoods that have been gentrified. And they are places where immigrants live now, often in questionable conditions. Uh, 
We see that here. We see that on the East Coast, certainly. I mean, a lot of the small towns in Long Island that are beyond the rich belt are now uh, places that have a significantly immigrant population uh, that are almost an underclass uh, and so forth. Um, You ask a, a profound and profoundly difficult question about whether somehow it is necessary for the uh, ongoing capitalist system for there to just simply be economic inequality. Uh, and I, I don't want to sound like an anti-Marxist, but the <laughs> answer may, might be yes. Um, I, I think that the history of cities is is not one of... uh, I'm wary of uh, suggesting an inverse relationship. Let's put it that way. Um, I meant by my bringing up Belle Epoque Paris only to say that uh, it wasn't so easy then either and that, in fact, underneath that lovely surface there were tensions not nearly as different as we might think from the ones we deal with today. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to try to uh, outthink Thomas Piketty <laughs> on this issue, and I'm not an economist, and nor do I wish to pretend to be. Um, I'm an you know, architecture and urban critic who is observing certain trends and trying to see how they connect to the physical form of cities. Um, that's only a partial answer, I realize, but it's... Uh, ultimately, a question that is itself a book someone ought to write. Yes, sir. Hi. I live in San Francisco, and I have three questions and feel free only to answer one. Um, The homeless, minimum wage, rent control. The homeless, minimum wage, and rent control. Um, That's another book. Um, Rent control, uh, I think, is a sort of desperate, last-ditch attempt to maintain a viable market, in, or rather a diverse market, in the face of the enormity of the forces that we face. Um, it's... I mean, I'm not generally a fan of it, and I think it is, in fact, distorting, significantly distorting to the market. But um, one of the, if, if the last few years have taught us anything, it's we cannot trust in the market to take care of everything. And that, uh, well, again, I will say yet again, I'm not an economist. I know enough to know that the trickle-down theory is not enough. And so... Um, distorting and artificial though rent control may be, I think it is one of those interventions, to use a word I used before, that is probably necessary today uh, only because of the hugeness of the forces pushing in the other direction. Um, I wish it were otherwise because I do find it a sort of... um, 
a force that in New York certainly has not always been a positive thing. Um, but now that we see the other side of it and how uh, troubling it is to see diversity, the city drained of diversity, uh, what I think we have to sort of grant that it is one of the fingers in the dike. Um, homelessness is uh, you know, a catastrophic issue for our society and uh, the fact that it exists at all in a society of such uh, extraordinary prosperity right now uh, is shameful. Uh, and that we do so little, uh, and certainly nationally, that we do so little about it. I mean, in, in San Francisco, the uh, public view is far more enlightened than in most parts of the country, but even so. Um, minimum wage, we are, I mean, there, there I'm the least qualified to answer because, as I said before, I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that several corporations have sort of preemptively raised wages in the last few weeks, uh, recognizing that the extent of income inequality has now become, uh, the fact that they are capable of being embarrassed by it, I think, is a good sign. <laughs> um, I, I don't know ultimately how much difference it will make, but uh, it's a good thing that things like that are happening. Uh, and I think the value of minimum wage is to create a degree of pressure that leads other things like that to happen, more than the wage itself. But we, we shall see. Any? Thank you. Hi. Good afternoon, and thank you. Thank you. Um, as I was listening, I heard you talk about... Um, the tech workers, the tech companies, mm -hmm. some allusions to um, the residents in San Francisco who've been affected by that influx. Right. But it was only towards the very end of your remarks when you referred to interventions without, but without referring to city government. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what role you see for city government today in managing the changes and challenges that you've described. And if you could... Um, talk about, refer to cities that you think have done a particularly good job or poor job in playing some kind of role um, in, in managing what we're experiencing right. okay. today. Good. Good. That's a very good question. Um, I did not mean at all to suggest that there's not a role for city governments. In fact, um, city governments are the most, uh, the most well-positioned to be the agents of intervention, let's say. Uh, now that we know that some degree of intervention is necessary. Uh, and uh, cities that have done a particularly good job... Well, let, let me go back to the part of the question that, that involved types of things. Um, I would like to hope that as I said, I'm not a great fan of rent control, even though I concede that it is probably a useful form of intervention today. Um, the construction of more affordable housing, the requirement of affordable housing uh, can, as connected to market rate housing, 
and other kinds of profitable developments is a form of intervention. Uh, we see it in New York. We see it here in San Francisco, uh, which are probably the two most enlightened large cities. Um, and uh, I think at the same time, uh, more willingness to put certain constraints on other kinds of real estate investment. For example, in New York, it is shameful that the zillion-dollar high-rise condos bought for global investment that I was talking about, which sell for amounts of money several times that of what had been a few years ago the most expensive apartments in the city uh, and that are mainly occupied by people who, mainly bought by people who don't occupy them, uh, somehow, through some loophole, were subject, were, were given the right to take advantage of tax abatement laws that were passed to encourage the construction of more affordable housing by abating them from real estate taxes for the first 10, 15 years, whatever it is. Uh, I mean, things like that are, are, are hor a horrendous embarrassment. Correcting mistakes like that are good. Um, there is no easy answer, in part because um, we're watching that now in New York where the new mayor, uh, Mayor de Blasio, is far more, let's say, um, concerned publicly about these issues we've been talking about than his predecessor was. Um, his way of dealing with it is not to discourage development and growth, but to encourage it and, in effect, tax it more. Not literally tax it, but well, though perhaps so, but, but to demand more from developers in exchange. In other words, saying, I don't mind if you want to build a 100-story condo. It's just you're going to make 100 affordable apartments as part of the deal, or you don't build that, as opposed to his predecessor who simply said, you want to build a 100-story condo? Bravo, you know, hooray, and leave it at that. So, but that creates in turn another problem, which is that um, it may be that good planning suggests that we be more limiting and more uh, restri restrictive on what gets built, period, no matter who occupies it, no matter what it's for. And so um, I don't want to solve one problem and create another. Uh, I don't want us to become indifferent to matters of physical planning, historic preservation, neighborhood stability, and so forth, um, just because we see uh, in new development a goose that is laying some wonderful golden eggs that we can use for wise and valuable social purposes. Uh, that's why it's a very, very complicated thing, I think. You know, you, you, you push in here and it pushes up here and, and, and so forth. It, it, um, it is not an easy thing to deal with. And as I said before, even the most socially responsive, socially activist city government is still, at the end of the day, dealing with global economic forces that it cannot control. Um, and wants to, to the extent possible, uh, divert those forces to the betterment of, its, of their city, as they should, but they can't turn them on and off. 
they can maybe channel them a little bit. Um, so, thank you all very much again. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.